0: Hey guys, I'm Fiona Winch, and you're listening. Bye. Just cracked my knuckles. Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so nervous. Hi guys, I'm Fiona Winch, and you're listening to Thoughtful Intentions, um, first episode. Uh, okay, so I guess I have to start by kind of explaining what was going through my brain when I wanted to do this, and um, it kind of goes back to this concept that I really hung on to in college that. Every path is the right path. Um, And as an artist, an actor, given how unorthodox those paths can get, it's just something I really wanted to hold on to. And I don't really know how to unpack that by myself, so that's why I'm bringing my dad on to help me do it. My dad, Jesse Winch, a first-generation Irish-American rock and roll drummer, pacifist who went to college for psychology, ended up in the Peace Corps in Africa, and then went to grad school for African American Studies. He took his activism for years protesting the war in Vietnam, all the while pursuing his passion for Irish music and eventually ended up in the Irish Music Hall of Fame. I don't even know if he would list that as his proudest accomplishment, but I just love saying it. Anyway, now that you're kind of caught up You can see why I've always wanted to interview my dad, especially given how unique his journey as an artist has been and how much that's inspired me. Um, But given the world today, uh, okay, so I was kind of always one of those kids that um, thought I was born in the wrong decade, I guess, you know, like really thought I would fit in well in the 60s, but of course I was picturing like flower crowns and bell bottoms and um, given what's going on in the world today with nationwide protests for the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the injustices and still blatant lack of equality, it feels like it parallels so much about you know, the darker side of the 60s that you also hear about. And I am lucky enough to be quarantined with someone who lived during that time um, and got involved in the civil rights movement. So that's what I chose to focus on with my dad today. In short, we talked a lot about his experience in the Peace Corps, and I tried to get a better bigger picture understanding of what it was like for him to come of age in the 60s thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it and um enjoy okay so to set the scene let's kick it back to 1960 jesse a high school senior track team captain and student body president was living in the bronx and commuting to school in harlem He was one of five siblings born to Irish immigrant parents. And he said that even though his parents had very little formal education and no money, they still encouraged all of the kids to go to college.
1: But anyway, Iona was was a good choice for me because it was known as a day hop college. Where most of the students did commute from wherever they lived, and I and I commuted from from the Bronx. It, uh, every day I hitchhiked actually to New Rochelle, and hitchhiked home. Something, of course, that would be insane to do today. Right. But back then, yeah, you could get out on the Cross Bronx Expressway, and you know, and take a ride to another another highway, and you'd have to know the different highways. You know, how to get to New Rochelle from. Like you know, the New York State Thruway or the Hutchinson River Parkway, or whatever. you know, you had to know the different ways because you would get a ride somewhere and you have to go on. So anyway, that meant though I didn't have any room and board expenses, when I could still live at home. And um, I never even gave that a second thought, actually. When I started there, I was still—I mean, like most—I was still in high school mentality mode and uh, uh, interested in partying and having a good time. Sure. Sound familiar? There you go. Uh, yeah. As time as time went on, like you know, my, after my freshman sophomore year, uh, so this would be nice. So 1960, 61 is my first year. 62, 63. Civil rights movement was was definitely heating up uh, big time, and uh, there were all sorts of, of uh, a- actions going on in, in, uh, in New York and the and the world. Um, I remember wearing a, a CORE pin, C-O-R-E, which stands for the Congress of Racial Equality. The one accomplishment I can say that I, I, I did make while at Iona was uh, establishing with with another uh, a fellow student of mine the John F. Kennedy Human Rights Forum. And this was after Kennedy was assassinated. So as a sort of a... In, in his memory for... Uh, a lot of the things that he that he uh prom- was promoting and stood for and and also to uh bring some attention to the campus for civil rights but also uh in the bigger picture human rights uh issues and uh and we did that i I definitely got the, the divide was was definitely uh, um, becoming clearer you know between uh, uh white and black. In, in the big picture uh, you know in in New York and at, even at Iona at that time um, with opinions about about civil rights opinions about uh, uh, you know how to resolve some of these issues what, should there be legislation should be this whatever um, and I definitely found myself on the side of uh, of, the, of the civil rights movement in terms of my opinion and my and my convictions and so forth so I and, and as I mentioned to you earlier uh Martin Luther King was, was very present and uh, and as as we know now from history, you know, uh, extremely important figure in promoting civil rights and advancing uh, the issues into to the mainstream to mainstream America. And I listened to him. I listened to a lot of what he had to say, and uh, I, I wanted to go to the his, the big march in I was Washington. Going to ask about that. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to go to it, but I had no idea. How to do that, and his, you know, of course, his speeches were were widely uh, distributed. You could listen to them, and watch them, read them, whatever. Um, and one of his messages was, you know, that people had had to get to know each other, essentially, uh, that white people had to get to know black people, and black people, white people, and that kind of thing. Uh, but especially, white people needed to understand and appreciate uh, black culture, and. And and I, I I took that to heart because uh, I thought that that would, it made so much sense.
0: That's what I mean. A lot of people are talking about now the difference between passive support and active support and inactivism. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that and and how how you did take that to heart. Was his leadership the inspiration that propelled you to go to the Peace Corps?
1: Well, that's where it, that's where it led me because. Uh, I, I, I did decide I got you know, I got interested in, um, in issues and stuff around around the Bronx and, uh, and and New Rochelle and whatever, but I also decided there was there was a, a lot of work to do, and and then, uh, uh, Kennedy had started the Peace Corps and that seemed really that was kind of an interesting thing to me and and then, a Peace Corps recruiter came to the campus, and. I went to hear his talk. I went, and one other student went.
0: Really? His name was
1: Vernon Farrell, and he was from Jamaica. <laughs> and we were the, only, the only two who showed up uh, to, to this guy. And, uh, what was his name? Um, I'll think of his name in a second. Yes. The guy, But he was a well known returned volunteer who was working for the Peace Corps. And uh, I was I was really moved by his presentation. I thought, this is an incredible opportunity to to live in because I you know, remember now I grew up in the Bronx
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in a totally urban environment I, this was an opportunity to go to a, a country I had never you know even uh, didn't know much about and live at at the level of the people that I would be working with uh and and it, the big ad in those days was uh join the peace corps and you'll make 11 cents an hour <laughs> you know kind of thing and that was that was on purpose because you know, it wasn't about the money, yeah. uh, so um, that that sold me. Actually, I made the application. I they, at the time you were at, you could ask for uh, a location, so I I for my continent I picked Africa, mm-hmm. and for my country I picked Nigeria. I just that's because I knew something about I knew I mean mm-hmm. I, I heard about Nigeria I didn't know much about it but that'd be I'd go there. Um, and then I was accepted and uh, I, was, I was accepted for training, but to go to Niger, not Nigeria, because I had studied French. Now they did not look at my grades Because <laughs> if they did they would not have sent me to niger my my French grades I mean I took French in high school and I took it in, in, at, at Iona took, you were I took not two good. years i was I was my grades were horrible, but it's, you know what has when you when you you studied Spanish you,
0: uh, when you, I know. I'm just, when, can you sorry. speak it? Well, no, 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 no. of
1: course not. <laughs> because, you know, you have to really live in a culture where it's spoken. And um, I was okay with was, They said, okay, Niger. I said, all right, yeah, I'll go to Niger. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You know, I've, I just remembered something. I was picked for Senegal, oh. which is also but for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Senegal uh, was a former French colony, so, so Fre- French was the national language. African countries... Uh, uh, Post-colonialism used the the European language as their national language because the Euro, the Europeans divided all these countries up with no real concern for ethnic you know uh, boundaries and that kind of thing so uh, so there were, there were big nation building was a, a critical um, you know issue for all these new countries and. Um, Using the European language was a kind of a binding sort of way, because it it wasn't one group versus another, and it was you know it was the colonial language, but they were using it for their own, own uh, you know purposes. So when I got to training, however, uh, the Senegal project I, I was in Niger three, the third project to go to Niger, but uh, there were more uh, in Senegal. Senegal was a bigger project. The Niger One and Two were not really active projects; they were exploratory. Okay. So they had to They had some like technicians go over there and think, you know, can we do any good here? Is it you know is it worth it? And blah blah. blah, blah. What do they need? What you kind of thing? So Niger Three was the big push.
0: But you were talking about Senegal project. Yes.
1: Yeah, so but so I was, went to training for Senegal, and because of the, this change in in uh, the plan for Niger. Where they wanted to send a bigger project, and mm-hmm. they they asked a couple of the Senegal trainees to switch to Niger, and you know, interestingly enough, Senegal is a is a pretty cool place to go, and Dakar is is a major urban you know city, uh, you know major urban environment and everything, and um, would have been kind of nice to go there. <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, I, again, I, that never even crossed my mind. I just said, "Yeah, I'll go to I'll go anywhere," you know. Yeah. Send me uh, there. Um, and so, in, in training, the three months training that I had at uh, Southern Illinois University mm-hmm. in Carbondale uh, focused on language language training, French and also uh, Hausa was was the other. I got a smattering of Hausa. And we had other courses. One was called World Affairs and Communism. Um, we had others on like economics and uh, African history, things like that.
0: How long was the training? Three months. Okay.
1: It was all summer. It was a summer long uh, training. Not everybody went to the to their to their country. I mean, uh, several people were selected out, as they as they called it.
0: The, who, For what purposes?
1: Well, they you know they. You were sort of being observed during the three-month period, and and all, at every level, you know, your ability to work with people, uh, you know, your your personality was critical. So, but and, like
0: they saw your French skills, and they still were like, "It's cool."
1: <laughs> well, I, I know I had a I had a banjo with me,
0: so that just negated the <laughs> lack of French.
1: <laughs> no, no, that made me very popular. Okay. <laughs> well, it didn't. I don't know if that. I don't know if it did that, but. Um, we I, we definitely had we or had, we had a jug band remember I was talking about jug bands yeah, the other yeah. day we we had a washtub bass and a guitar and a couple of, you know we had it and in fact I I had my first harmonica lesson in in peace corps training yeah so training was training was was good i mean uh, even though they they taught Hausa once you got past a certain level in your french studies you were then you went to study Hausa but i i went to an area where Hausa wasn't spoken anyway I, the the language was a uh, and it was it's a uh, a Songhai language, uh, which was okay because you know there's a there's a certain um, there's a certain kind of uh, uh, context for all for the for the cultural context, and Arabic is is part of it. Like the greetings are similar, okay. uh, it, they're they're Arabic greetings in Hausa and in Zerma, uh, and you learn that kind of thing. And
0: uh, so just to for the sake of anyone listening, to geographically point out where Niger is. It's West Africa.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question because Niger is located, if you looked at the map of Africa, it's in West Africa, but it's right in the middle of the Sahara Desert pretty much with the bottom third of the country being in what's called the Sahel zone. So if you're in the desert and you're going south, you're, you you have, the, you have you know the sand dunes and whatever, and then when you come out of the actual desert, there's there's little brush kind of growing here and there, and very few trees and that kind of thing. It's called the Sahel, and then as you get further south, you get more vegetation, until you finally get down to like uh, southern Nigeria, where you're pretty almost on the equator, and you're in in the jungle mm-hmm. as the, as the, the or the rainforest. So there's a, you, know, you can see all those changes by looking so at the map.
0: Where did what part of the country were you in?
1: What was I in? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so if you look at the map, I was always in the uh, western part of Niger. There's a, little, there's a little kind of a bit of it that, that kind of sticks out where the Niger River flows, and it flows through Niger into, into Nigeria. And then into the ocean, so I was in a, in a section where where the the river was was, was a very important part of the uh, of the culture, and I was I worked I was in, uh, assigned to a town called Tillaberi, which was about 100 kilometers north of Niamey, the capital, and uh, I, so it's a small village, and um, the reason I was there is because there was a project sponsored by the Nigerian government. One of the agencies uh, in Niger was called the uh, Union, de Nigeria, Union Nigerienne de Credit et Cooperation, uh, so the Niger Union for Credit and Cooperation, which is a farming, a farmer's co-op.
0: So, like, why did they pick you, an ur- urban well, guy from the oh, Well, okay, I, actually,
1: I should have said more about the training. <laughs> okay. Because in training we learned, we learned. I show you some, some pictures. I,
0: they prepared you.
1: I was plowing
0: oh my God.
1: with a with a an oxen and plow, and with a mule. I learned to. I mean, you know, I have pictures of me doing that. And and I I worked in a blacksmith shop, uh, you know, learning how to how to uh, do that that trade. As well. okay. And they you know they could try to cover a lot of the ground. But it, that's a good question because I said that to myself. I said, look, I I was born and raised in the Bronx, and and I'm going. To work in a agricultural major. development in in the Niger bush, you know, kind of thing. A but,
0: psychology major. Pardon? Psychology major.
1: Psychology major and all, but here's the thing: the answer to that, even from the Peace Corps perspective, was they were looking for what they called B.A. generalists. So somebody with a Bachelor of Arts degree, so it would show that you. You know, you made it through four years of college. so You had some sense about you, and some intelligence, mm-hmm. and some some critical thinking skills. That was the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were you weren't a, like a specialist who okay. could get frustrated very easily. Sure. You were a gen. You had a general sort of approach to things, and it was you very were, you true. You were
0: down to learn whatever they needed you to learn.
1: Well, or I would I would learn what I had to maybe teach. You know that kind of or, okay. or like pass on because you know. Well, let me get to where I worked. So I worked, uh, I had a roommate, Tom Hale, who is a Penn State retired professor.
0: Is he the one that drove me?
1: Yeah, took you to the hospital. hospital? Yeah. Okay. He was my housemate in Tilbury.
0: When I, okay, for context, (laughs) my freshman year of college, I had an allergic reaction to a prescription for a sinus infection and had to go to the hospital, and he drove me. I called. I, I was, called Tom. I said, "Hey." Well, this was before Uber, even. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and we were both listening to Prairie Home Companion. I remember that because he had it on the radio. Anyway, uh, so Tom and I uh, were assigned to, but we had we had a we had a pickup truck, and we had a, a you know a, a bonco house that they called they call them bancos. They were houses made out of mud bricks, mm-hmm. <clears throat> mud and straw. Um... No electricity and uh, no, no uh, running water or anything like that, just, you know, uh, candles and whatever. Um, but we worked with farmers who lived on islands in the Niger River. So, okay. Because, you know, they, they, they could get... I'm trying uh, to picture that. Well, there were a lot of small islands with, with small, you know, village uh, uh, populations and... Um, and they farmed but they their farming methods were i mean they were ancient ancient like they plowed by hand
0: so was your what was your purpose going down there what did the peace corps want you to accomplish
1: okay well i first of all i i had a nigerian boss okay who was the, who ran the program okay who tom and i worked with very closely so with.
0: it wasn't like a bunch of white guys just coming no 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 we were the only
1: white people but tom is still in touch with uh, our our Yunusi yeah, was his name. He was very good and he knew what had to be done and he would tell us what, what to do. He would say you know one of the big things was to try to get the farmers in the different villages to chip in and buy a set of oxen to help them plow. And then they could use the oxen and then they, once they plowed their field the oxen could be transported to the other another island where they would they, you know that's how basic the farming was. No,
0: which, so you were like doing development. Oh
1: yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they had little boutiques on these on on the islands, where uh, you could buy little cans of tomato paste or uh, sardines, things like that, or other uh, you know. So candles. I
0: was kind of gonna ask like if what was going on in the United States was like translating back, but yes and it no. It sounds I, like they are kind of. In a different well or? well yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I got really got very involved in just being over there and doing the work I was doing um, and it, it was an eye-opener to me when one of the one of my other uh, one of the other guys in the project uh, Jamie Thompson he must have had a subscription to um, I think a magazine called foreign policy or something like that but he was re- he was reading about the vietnam war and i was like vietnam i said like what's that you know and so this and, is
0: kind of crazy because like of course now you know in the age that i've grown up and it's the internet it's fast news oh, or, so like yeah. down there you just didn't what means of contact did you have
1: we had radio niger okay and then we had the voice of america like, we had radios. That's, that was the main thing. We had, like, you, know, you had a shortwave radio. But, but that was, and I was like, what, what, well, Vietnam, what the heck's going on there? And then, and, and, and that's, that was sort of the, the time. I remember it so well. See, like, I could picture Jamie sitting there with his, the magazine, and he was, you know about, you know what's going on? I said, no. I went, so, and that, of course, if my activism really started when I got back,
0: you okay, know, so I can, I don't know if you want to talk about the Peace Corps more, but I, I was going to ask about that too. Yeah. About, the, like, how, uh, your, how did your perspective change when you did get home? Yeah. Because I'm sure it, the world is, must have looked different after spending two years.
1: Well, let me just finish okay. about, what Please, I did yeah, in the Peace Corps, because I, I, I moved to Niamey in my second year. And at the end of, my, end of my first year, first I went on, they gave us a 30-day vacation, and I went with another volunteer, Fred Daly, uh, we we got on a, uh, a bus called Trans African, in, in uh in Niamey, and uh, <clears throat> took the bus down to Lagos. No, no, down to Lomé, um, in Togo, and hung out there and went went swimming in the ocean. It was like pretty cool. It was down on the coast, and then went across to Lagos which I loved because it was like a dirty old city and it reminds me of New York. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, wow, because I would have been a year in the bush kind of thing.
0: Yeah. He talked about the next few stops they made on the trip and how excited he was to find and purchase an Irish LP in Nigeria, which I just thought was so random.
1: We went all across southern Nigeria by bus, and this was the time when the Biafran War was about to start, which was a big, a major... Upheaval in Nigeria in those days. It was the the Ibo people of the east Eastern Nigeria who were very industrious and were working a lot of government jobs, and they were resented by a lot of the other by the Yoruba and some and to some extent the Hausa, and a, and a big then the 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 Biafra was a state that they tried to establish to break away from Nigeria. It didn't happen. There was a war, and it was on the verge of happening when we were traveling. So that was kind of interesting. We and we went around right around the bend into Cameroon, and we went to um, a, a town called Boya, which is at the foot of Mount Cameroon, and we climbed the mountain. It's the second highest peak in Africa at thirteen thousand feet. And then we um, we got a we got a ride. We got a we got a ride in an airplane from somebody.
0: What, <laughs> what
1: do you mean? We got to ride to Kano. So,
0: so this is still hitchhiking. We were, yeah, we
1: were still... We, how the hell did we do that? I can't remember. Oh, and then I ended up working with a bunch of a Dutch hydrologists who were doing a well survey.
0: I, know I, uh, I don't even remember the question I asked. <laughs> oh, I'm, trying to, I'm
1: trying to wrap up what I did in okay. Peace Corps. So, this was a, a month-long thing. They were going around from like, village to village, asking, trying to find out where, where the best place would be to dig a well. Because there's a lot of this <laughs> water. Water was a major commodity. Okay. And uh, so I went along, being a Peace Corps volunteer and knowing the land and the people, so to speak. Uh, I was like an advisor to them. Anyway, so then I then I ended up saying settling into Niamey, and I worked for the Forest Service, les Le, eaux waters and forest. And um, I, my main job there was managing a tree nursery, and that's where I, I got my uh, driver's license. I think it was in, in, in the AMA, uh, because I was out on a, on a trip with the USAID ad, advisor who we were working with, uh, and we went out to visit an, an Israeli uh, project called a range management project where they were, like, fencing off an area and trying to raise certain vegetation to see if it would grow and if it was feasible to plant in different places. But it got late, and we, we started home, and no roads. This was just in the bush. You look at the moon and you kind of figure out where you were going and the guy his name was Fred uh, Fred something or other he was driving the jeep and he was kind of falling asleep and not that he would he would crash into anything because there were just the goats maybe were, oh, uh, but he he just stopped and said okay you drive
0: at night
1: oh yeah and I said i said i'm sorry Fred i don't I don't I really don't and you're to drive. 22
0: yeah okay
1: he said you, he said you you know now," he said. "Get over here." Oh my God! And he was did, it a stick
0: shift? Oh yeah,
1: it was. It was. And it was I don't a, even know why I asked that. that it was, was a World Ridiculous. War Two, <laughs> World War Two surplus jeep. It didn't have a top. You know, it didn't, this was an open, an open jeep with two seats in it.
0: And you made it.
1: Well, he told me. He said, "Yeah, put your foot on the clutch." He, you know, he coached did he me do and getting it like because once you, you get or started.
0: like Like I don't know how you'd be able to figure that out.
1: It. It turned out to be fairly. Once you got into third gear, it didn't matter anyway. Then you just kind of be like, it's like you're being at an amusement park. You're driving a thing. Okay, right okay. I don't
0: think that's what you wanted.
1: And we drove back to Niamey, and then the peace corps said, "You better get your license, learn how to drive." So I I, I went to because uh, by then I, I started driving the pickup truck that we had. That was a Chevy pickup, and I went to um, take the test. And I showed up, and, and then they made—they had a little French car there called the De Chevaux, which means it's two horses or two horsepower. That's what they call it, a De chevaux. And it was this crazy French car. It was like a tin can. And and the gear shift was in the, in the dashboard, and you pulled it in and out. Like, you didn't shift this way. You just kind of – and I, I was like jerking the car. <laughs> and the guy said, get out, get out. You know, you failed kind of thing. And I did it. I did that twice. I tried to take it on the Dushabou. And I, the second time, I said, "I said this isn't isn't really working out. Can I take the test in a pickup truck?" Which I didn't think I could do. And he said, "Yes, of course." So I went back the third time, and I passed it on the pickup truck.
0: Did you have to take the test in the states? No. They uh, just took your. Uh, no, here's
1: the, that's part of the story too. Because is that
0: why you drive so slow? Like
1: I don't drive slow. You drive listen drive so slow. When I when I got. So I got my, my Niger driver's license. Then when I was leaving Niger, before I left, I applied for an international driver's license. I didn't
0: even know that existed. You know, they had,
1: I forget, the UN or somebody issues them. I don't know who it was. I can't remember. But I got an international driver's license. And when I got to D.C., I just went down to the Motor Vehicle Bureau and I said, I oh, have an international license. Can I get a, a D.C. license? They said, sure, and they gave me a license.
0: Oh, my God. Okay. So <laughs> to ra- is that anyway. your... Comprehensive wrap of the peace corps. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, but then I managed a tree nursery with Owen, and uh, and and we raised oh, we raised thousands of trees in these little plastic pots, and then right in the Niger climate, uh, I mentioned it was in the Sahel zone. That meant it got minimal rainfall, but it got for three months of the year it, it, they had a rainy season. That's it. Then nine months of, of drought. So you, if you've got a tree in the ground just before the rains hit, it got th- three months of water. So if it, if it established itself in those three months, then you hoped for, uh, of all the trees you plant, uh, maybe a 10% survival rate. Oh. So, we would, so we would plant these trees before the rainy season. we put it... Oh, geez. Acacia trees which are good for farmers because they're nitrogen binders, and we <laughs> want the farmers to plant the trees in their fields so they would get better crops. And then we had a, a tr- an import from uh, Indochina China from the French called a neem tree, which we planted in schoolyards until the kids could take care of it, keep the goats from eating the, the leaves and that kind of thing, um, and other dry... Sandy soil kinds of treat that we raise. So anyway, when I finished with, with my two years, um, I flew out of out of uh, Niamey. It was uh, I think in probably early June, and I went I went to the uh, I first I went to Dakar, and hung out there for a couple days.
0: Finally got to see it. Pardon. Finally got to see it. Yeah, I
1: finally got to see it. And uh, and then I went then I flew to the Canary Islands, cool. uh, on my way to Madrid. But the Canary Islands was was also an interesting stop off. In Madrid I met your Uncle Terry Mm -hmm. and a guy named John Mariani, who was also an Iona, uh, a friend of Terry's class. And he had a a, a guitar, Terry had a mandolin, and I had my banjo. And so the three of us spent the next couple of months going around Europe. But we did end up in Ireland. We we went to Italy, we went to uh, France, Spent some time in uh, in Nice, which was really cool. Got to speak, you know, use our friend. Mm-hmm. I got to use my French and all that kind of thing. Um, played a lot of music in, in like railroad stations and that kind of thing, and uh, wherever. In fact, in in Italy, we were playing at Venice in the railroad station, and we played a uh, bella ragazza, which is you know an Italian folk song that we we knew because. It was kind of popular in those days. Hmm. And it's the theme that Mozart used for his Capriccio Italien. Okay. Anyway, we had we could play that. <laughs> so, and people were like cheering and they were clapping. It was kind of fun.
0: What are you holding? Is that the yearbook?
1: I pulled this out of the garage because these are. He's
0: holding a black. Book. Like, oh, are these the letters? These are all
1: my letters that I, I carbon are, copied when I was in Niger.
0: So to be clear, you had to type letters home on a typewriter and you used yeah. carbon, carbon paper. copy. I used carbon
1: paper to, to make a carbon so <laughs> that I would have a record of what I was
0: And And you them. wanted to redact some of it before oh, yeah. you wanted me <laughs> to read it. Yes, I, I do. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> it
1: is allowed. That
0: completely like, no. And I also
1: had what is this? This is my... Uh, Oh yeah, my foreign service department, of state foreign service institute, my, my French, my French exam. I got a, a three out of four in my uh, in speaking. Okay, so got, you got, got better. A, yeah.
0: Cool. You can't read about that what I got 1966. in reading. I didn't read. I didn't, never mind. What don't. did you get in reading? I got ten in reading. <laughs> no, you didn't. You're a liar.
1: <laughs> and this is this is a little uh, journal entries from uh, uh from my my work at the. Uh, in the, two n- in the nurseries.
0: Anything juicy? What? Anything juicy? No, no, no. Well what does it uh, say? With
1: a borrowed mobileette, went to see Gibo, but he was not in his office. <laughs> 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 um, so was, I'm glad you are that down. I think he was my boss or something. My uh, spent some time preparing to photograph various tree species.
0: Cool.
1: Still have not found a, Dece, a De Du that the car I was telling you about. We'll have to make an appointment for test on Wednesday. That was my driving test, yeah. Uh-huh. See, I was looking for a dish to go to practice on. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Honey. Yeah,
0: oh, so, more... comprehensive wrap-up of the yeah. Peace Corps. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then I want to ask next about what I mentioned before, like how your perspective probably changed of the whole United States and the world around you and the effect that the Peace Corps had when you got home. And clearly it changed enough for you to go to grad school. So what was that process? Well, you know
1: the whole, the interesting thing really is uh, it was it was a very sort of organic thing that I went through because you know when I when I graduated from myona, uh, graduate school was not uh, uh, in the horizon for me. I was a psychology major, um, but I really didn't have the grades to to go like right into graduate school for you know for. Any kind of a, a program, like a, even a counseling a, a master's in counseling or something like that, which I would have liked to have done uh, in retrospect, but um, as I explained, the, the, I definitely wanted to go in the Peace Corps. I definitely wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to pursue that. I came back. Uh, I came back to a really changed uh, place, actually, and but by having been in the Peace Corps is what I was going to say. Um, that gave me the opportunity to go to graduate school for something I was really interested in, you know, something that made a lot of sense to me, like, like African Studies. Um, although I never would have thought, I didn't think of that before I went in, but mm-hmm. uh, it came up you know, in, in discussions about, uh, with other volunteers about what they were going to do when, when they went back. And that was one of the things that came up as a possibility. And I was like, Oh yeah, African studies—that yeah, sounds pretty interesting. So
0: how did that coincide with what you came back to? Like you said, it was a different.
1: Well, then, I, then I, that was I was I was just going back on how that kind of came about. Okay. I, I wasn't even yeah, thinking yeah. about it before, but it came came up. So, and then I thought this. I thought, Yeah, that's a great opportunity, and I would be really prepared because I had lived in Africa for two years. I had studied African culture. I had studied Hausa. Uh, I had studied Zerma, you know, languages. I, you mm-hmm. uh, all these all these things uh, made sense. My French had really improved immensely. It took me about three, maybe four months, in Niger. Uh, 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 well, after three or four months, I could. I was pretty fluent in everyday conversation in French. You just it just happens when you're there, and you have to do it, and you you pick up word, vocabulary and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, so when I got back back to uh, to the states, um, everybody was smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I mean, it was all over the place, and I was I couldn't believe it because I would, there would you know,
0: but uh, you jumped on board pretty
1: quickly. No, no, I did not. I didn't. No, I did not uh, actually later. Much later, much later, but but I, you know, it, well, I guess what I'm saying is there was major social change. Right. It's, it would be 1966. Um, and uh, you could see the start of uh, like the counterculture emerging, that kind of thing.
0: Like why Howard? Like I know, obviously. Oh, HB why did CU I? Some was a great place to like learn African studies. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, good but. question.
1: How, Howard's. I, I did some research on this whole thing, and uh, there were a couple of reasons. Howard's African Studies program was in the top five of the country. Mm-hmm you know independently rated but it but it so howard had had a good very good reputation mm-hmm. and the the tuition was was very very manageable for me because i i had to pay for it i had to pay for it myself pretty much i probably borrowed some i can't remember but it was not expensive howard being a land grant college had had very very low tuition uh by, back then maybe, maybe still does and uh so those, those two reasons really were, and, and then, and third, the bigger, big reason is I was going to a, a, a black university. Mm-hmm. That was, that was like a follow-up, you know, of course. to this plan in my, in my, my, this sort of non-plan plan that I had, you know, for,
0: for I lear- mean, like learning what, about. Right, what better place to learn. Exactly. Right.
1: Uh, I want to learn about African, now that I've been to Africa and worked, you know, in African in an African culture, and, and met the people. Uh, now I'm going to study what I had just experienced right. with mm-hmm. professionals, you know, who can, wh- whoever, you know, uh, work with me and so forth. Uh, and that was pretty much true. That, the way it worked out. Um, so when I when I uh, and I, I got this apartment.
0: He proceeded to tell me about paying forty dollars a month to live in the boiler room of a house. <laughs> there
1: for two years. That is really weird. <laughs> oh, and the shower, the shower was the outside the door, outside the, the entrance way, because you know, you know, you know how a house, a private house would have like a like a side entrance with a stairway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this was under the stairway.
0: That's really sketchy. <laughs> under the stairway,
1: you went down three steps and then went into like into the so this was a shower outside. The, that door, that's where the shower um, And
0: Okay, so what about winter time? We're not in Texas.
1: Leisure time?
0: Winter time. Winter
1: time. Well, you'd put the hot water on.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> so Okay, so you went to Howard for... And time.
1: the reason it was $40 a month is because the, own, the landlord needed somebody in the building to accept his mail. Like, you know what I mean? He needed a resident agent kind of deal. And he said, if you agree to do that, then... You know that's why the rent's so cheap. Well, the question was also cheap because it was a hole in a wall. Okay.
0: <laughs> you know? well.
1: Anyway, so I I, I I did I got a place to stay. You know, and um, went back up to back up to New York, and then down. You know, for, for the start of, of the the school year and all that. Um, and I didn't know what I was getting, I didn't know what what I was going to be studying or anything. You know, there were required courses in your in your first year to, for the master's degree. You had to take thirty credits. Mm-hmm. And that's all, you know, and it included thesis research. And so
0: stuff why like. were you there for three and a half years?
1: Well, I'll tell you. Um, so in that first year, it was, the first year was very tough, actually. I started thinking, well, maybe that's what I'll major in, you know, something to do with sociology or economics or something. Not that I was that interested in it, but I needed something to latch mm-hmm. on to. However, I, I looked in the syllabus and there's an, a course in African music. And I said, ooh, I'm taking that. And that turned out to be taught by Halim Eldab, who, who ended up being my thesis advisor and my mentor. Um, I couldn't... Well, this guy was just phenomenal. He... Um, and his background was really amazing. He's Egyptian-born, uh, lived in Ethiopia for a, a good while, and, um, and he wrote the music for... Um, one of Martha Graham's major dance works.
0: You know, I was reading that, and I didn't even know that you knew who Martha Graham was. Because oh. I studied her I, stuff I, in my modern classes. I, but I, it just didn't occur to me. I met Martha that. Graham. No, you didn't.
1: I worked on her studio. when what? I When I was a, when I was an undergraduate My in the summer, I used to work for a construction company called United Construction, which was a weatherproofing company like they would do.
0: How does this relate at all to Martha
1: Graham? Well, I, I we ended up working on Martha Graham's studio, and she she used to come out, you know, we'd be outside working on cement work, you know, like, pointing oh, the bricks. Oh, you told
0: me this, that you would be, like, levy pulled up to the, the, do window the, the, work, the, right? The, the, yeah, I, I
1: used to mix the cement and do that kind of stuff. Okay. But she used to come out every morning and say hi to us, and how's the work going, and all that kind of thing. And I, I knew who she was at that point. I mean, I was into the kind of artsy scene in New York. I, liked, I was definitely into that, and... Um, so, I, so Martha, and I looked her up, you know, I kind of... So then when I met El Dobb and found that he had wrote one of, the, one of the, her major performances, Clyde Mestra, he wrote the music for that. And it's, it's really, it's pretty far-out stuff, and that really appealed to me. <laughs> I, sure. And then it turns out he was one of the very first people to do anything, have anything to do with electronic music. He was involved in the, uh, the Columbia-Princeton Electronic Music Laboratory, uh, and they put out some LPs in the 1950s, and El was into tape manipulation. Like, in other words, uh, yeah. you know, like you slow a tape down, speed it up, do like, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of do stuff to create a, a soundscape, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and he had, he had all kinds of, he did he did these electronic pieces on Egyptian mythology. One is called Lila and the Poet, and he, uh, I've got, a, I have the LP here from the Columbia oh. thing. It's really pretty interesting stuff. So you know that that blew me away, and plus the fact he was all-embracing kind of a person. He was one of these universal people. He just he loved everybody, and he Mm -hmm. wanted you to be, you know, to learn stuff, and he wanted to help you and encourage you. You could not have asked for a a better, uh, you know, resource person like that, and a teacher, and mentor, and everything else.
0: So we like we didn't really address this, and it this hasn't been the focal point anyway. But just for Contextual sake, we know that you were in the music scene in New York, rock and roll beforehand. We know you were in Irish music, and then you must have gotten the African music from the Peace Corps. So you know there's djembes around here, but like when you decide to major in that.
1: Well, that's yeah. I didn't mention anything about the music I experienced in Niger, yeah. but to 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 give you a little bit of information on that. What was uh, the, the popular music that we heard all the time mostly came from East Africa, from the Congo, and there was a label called OK Jazz, and uh, one, of the, one of the major artists on OK Jazz was a guy named Franco. Franco a OK Jazz was like, he was a big, big, big artist. And, it's, you know, he was, sang in French, mostly, mm-hmm. or sometimes they would slip into Lingala, or some other East African language. But it was ma- mainly a, 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 Franc- a Francophone kind of thing. So you heard this music all over French-speaking Africa. Mm-hmm. And it was, you would go into, a, you know, like in Niger, in Niame, there were these, like, sort of sidewalk cafes that'd be behind, a, a, like, a, a, a banco wall or something like that. And they'd be blasting uh, OK Jazz music, uh, you know, on the PA system. Uh, and the big hit of the of the, of the two years was a, a song called "Si Tu Bois Beaucoup, if you drink too much, or you you drink too much basically. <laughs> and, that, I have, and I have I have that recording here somewhere right. too. Uh, but there were very I mean the music was very 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 moving and uh, and it was dance music and it really made you want to get up and dance. I also uh, heard uh, a fair amount of traditional music. Uh, Warren Tillaberry, than Niame because I was in a more rural area. And that picture I, I showed you the other day mm-hmm. of, of the guy in my yard with yeah. the drum, he was playing what what they, what they call in the West a talking drum. Uh, the house her name is Kalangu. And it, you know, you, you press on the I have one up there. You press on the strings and that tightens the head and raises the pitch. Mm-hmm. So you could play you could actually play tones, language tones on the drum.
0: Okay, so this is more in keeping with your major, the tonal languages, or at least your thesis, as, as I understand way, it.
1: It's the way it evolved, yeah.
0: Okay, and I okay, I do want to know more about all of that, but just for culture's sake, I know we talked about this briefly before, but like you were at Howard when MLK was assassinated.
1: I was. I was at, I think I was in a, uh, a graduate seminar at, at, at a, a teacher's house when, when the word came out and it was, I mean, you know, everybody was just devastated by, by the news and, um, you know, it was, and, and, there, and there were, there were like, you know, 60 years ago, but there were like mm-hmm. gatherings on the campus and stuff like that and, you know, uh, vigils and that sort of thing. You know, that was that that definitely happened and then and the undergraduate student body was was very active. In mm-hmm. fact, um the student body president was a guy named QT Jackson, who I later became friends with. But um, you know, they closed down Howard. They they closed down the uh the school and oh. took over the administration building and that kind of thing. But anyway, the L Ald- the old thing was um you know, uh, I, I kind of connected up with him, and I, and I said, oh, I, I could major in, one of the areas you could major in was called the arts in Africa, because this was an interdisciplinary degree, mm-hmm. right? So, Because it, it was a cultural study kind of thing. So the arts in Africa, I said, that sounds good to me. The, the art cl- African art class was by, uh, given by James Porter, a, a very famous um, African-American art historian, uh, who I also became friends with. I hadn't even translated. He had a booklet in French on on African art that I translated for him. That's cool. And then I I got into my thesis project was the other thing. So my, I. So this
0: I, is what took three and a half years. No
1: no no no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to that. Okay. My first thesis project was, I figured, I'm, you know, I was big into folk music, as you know. Yes. You know, I, I, I like American folk music, and of course the Irish music that I grew up with, mm-hmm. and knew a lot about. So, you know, music was very important to me, and traditional music in particular, and folk music. So I wanted to do the, the African patterns in Afro-American music. That was my first choice of a, of a thesis. Because I had heard about, you know, I knew, like, the call and response was, was an African okay. music pattern. You I know, see. and you see that in African-American, uh, chor- like a gospel singing, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, and there's other, other things, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know what, what I was going to be looking for or at, but I, I thought it was a great idea. And I, in my visits to downtown D.C., I ran into uh, a street singer, Flora Moulton, who was, used to sit, sit at the corner of 7th and F Streets near what was then the Woodward and Lothrop uh, department store. And uh, she, had a, she had a slide guitar, so open tuning guitar, and a and a cup on the end of it, hmm. and uh, she used to sit there and play. She was a gospel singer, and uh, I thought this is this is floral. I, I said hello to her when you know I introduced myself. I said I'm really interested in your music, you know, and I gave her I gave her some money because that's what she that's mm-hmm. what she was there for. And I said, would you mind if you know maybe we like we continued talking about it? And she said, no, no. She was so delighted, you know, no to meet somebody you're interested in talking mm-hmm. to and whatnot, and, and rec- I recorded her, too. Um, and then she introduced me. There was another singer. You could hear him blocks away. And, I, I, and I, 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 mean, I think I even said to her, who's that guy down there on 8th Street? Because he was, he was a blind street singer. This was an interesting phenomenon, seeing street singers you know,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: an urban environment. That, that was a real throwback to an older time. But his name was, uh, anyway, uh, Florida introduced, told me who he was, and I went down and said hello to him. Uh, Bill Hines was his name. And, and he w- I also wanted to, wanted to you know, get him involved, and he said he, you know, he was ready to go. And he was part of a gospel group called the Blind D.C. Gospel Singers. Hmm. There were like five guys, they were all blind, and they had a great gospel group.
0: That's cool.
1: And, uh, and then I met Archie Edwards, who um, was a barber in Northeast, his barbershop was called the Alpha Tonsorial Parlor. and if again if you when you look into African American history, you know that the barbershop is a major crossroad it's like it's like the pub in uh, in rural Ireland right, right, right you know you go to the, you go to the barbershop and you, and Archie would have his guitar there and he, he as he said, yeah I cut a little hair, then I play the guitar you know kind of thing <laughs> and um
0: how did you meet him? I met
1: him again through Flora, okay. and 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 that whole scene. You know, there was I was I just kind of
0: was introduced
1: to an, ama- an amazing scene of, of uh, African American music and, and you know traditional. One beautiful, wonderful, amazing experience for me. And I actually brought I brought them all to the Smithsonian Folklife Festival,
0: oh, cool. and I put
1: on a workshop. It was called Street Blues and Gospel Music from Washington D.C. Uh, Ralph Rinsler, who was the head of the Folklife Festival, uh, set it up for me, and and then we did a show for Radio Smithsonian. Uh, but my project, I was kind of, I wrote some some introductory papers on it, and it wasn't it wasn't taking off. And Halim was great. He was like, you yeah, know, we'll figure something out. Then I heard I hear about these uh, language fellowships that were being offered by uh, the um, the National Defense Foreign Language Program, and this this is a government-sponsored, uh, probably still exists, where they they give fellowships to, to people who want to study esoteric languages, hmm. because if there's ever a national emergency,
0: I mean that's still appreciated.
1: Yeah. So I saw the, I saw somebody said, "Hey, you know, why don't you apply for a House a fellowship?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I actually know a little of the House to the begin with, and I. I know the uh, the cultural context, you know. So, so I applied for it and I got it, and uh, th- that that paid for anything and, and the rest of my time in Howard uh, tuition and books and oh. everything, you know.
0: So you were like, "I'll stick around."
1: Yeah. So then I okay. abandoned my first, my I abandoned the, my first okay. project, and I and that's when I, I and then I start kind of started all over in my second year. I got my required courses out of the way in my first year. Mm-hmm. And then I was just doing thesis research, you know. So with,
0: you finished the thirty credits in your first yeah, year. Right. Okay. All right. But
1: right. I still kept taking credits. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up That's with cool. sixty-five graduate credits. Wow. That's what you need if you want to get a PhD, if and, from the credit side of it, anyway. Um. And and then I took the, and, the house of teacher, was a German guy named named uh, Hermann Jungreitmeier. What? <laughs> I know. Are you he was He's a house expert. They brought him over from Germany. But my... Uh, i interview see, but, that
0: guy next. No, but see, when you have
1: somebody like that who's not a native speaker, you need an informant to be part of the program. And the yeah. informant turned out to be a, a wonderful woman named Rahila Yusufu, who I knew from Niger because she was the wife of Umaru Yusufu, who worked for the Niger government and had been assigned to Washington... He became the ambassador.
0: What are the chances?
1: I know. I was like oh, Raheela. I was like, oh Raheela, and you know, she, we just knew each other real well. So, uh, she was great, and she, you know, uh, she explained a lot to me. You know, but that's what you, you work with an informant as well as uh, you know an academic, and you get all the, You get all the, the, the you know, the grammar and the formalities and that kind of mm-hmm. thing from, from the academic side, and then. Um, the informant kind of you know gets make sure you get the pronunciation right and mm-hmm. explains some of the cultural context. I and mean, there's a whole, it's a whole probably
0: way. like even like slang or the way people converse Like I feel like conversation is way different than everything.
1: Everything about grammar. it. It's, it's, a, it's how you learn a language really. Basically, when okay, yeah, yeah. Thing. And uh, so this whole thing about tune and tone was was popular. You know there have been studies uh, on lots of different languages. Uh, Looking into the relationship between see, houses a tone language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to use the correct language tones when you're using uh, the, the same word; they'll mean the totally different things. Right. Nothing. Nothing like anything. Ex- like so that you've exists. explained
0: this to me before. It's yeah. like if I said candle and then said candle, they would yeah, mean different candle. things. Right. They would mean. It th- wouldn't mean anything like
1: candle. It it's would sure. mean like uh, a, top light hat. Yeah. a light okay. Pope. Yeah. Light <laughs> Pope. Okay. Uh, the, the example I use is, is "yaya," which means uh, mother-in-law, and "yaya" means scraping clean.
0: Oh my God! You know
1: what I mean? They're, they're, that's different, but the same word. That's so, even
0: like more complicated than like "read" and read. And
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, see, that's a, that's inf, that's not, that's inflection or something. That, 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 Mom, that's not yeah. tone. Um, but uh, so, and then you know, you have context also that explains it. You know, if you're not really good. If, well, you know, if you're like a student and your tones aren't like great yet, uh, the context will help you be understood. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. But anyway, and also, you know, in Asian languages, Chinese, for example, uh, there's degrees of tonality in languages. Some are, like, more tonal than others. Where
0: is Hausa primarily spoken, aside from Niger?
1: It's uh, northern Nigeria. Okay. Because the French and the English... You know, they fought tooth and nail for, for land, and they just they just sliced the whole house of the world in, in, in half. I uh, I'd say two-thirds of them were in Nigeria, and one-third of them were in Niger. So anyway, that's where I got the idea for to uh, do a tune-tone study, because that brought the music side of it for me.
0: So you did your thesis. Got my master's. Got your master's. Yeah. Um, and then?
1: Then I started looking for a job, and I, I wrote to the United Nations. I went to all these different agencies and stuff like that. Uh, Amnesty International, because I had been a conscientious objector, mm-hmm. uh, and, I can't, and nobody was was uh, then interested. Then, well, then I wrote to the Museum of African Art, which is was based at the time in the Frederick Douglass Townhouse on Capitol Hill, and mm-hmm. run by a guy named Warren Robbins. Um, and I sent them my resume and, and a letter, and I, I I mailed it in D.C. They they got it overnight. It was one of those fluky things, and they because mm-hmm. they called me the next day and said, the woman who called said, Mr. Robbins wants to meet you right away. Can you come over? T- can you come over today or tomorrow? So I went over, and I kind of I knocked on the door, and they took a, she took a look at me. and Goes she went oh, and I thought what what's going you know, and, she, and then then I met Mr. Robbins and we talked, and he he said, quite honestly, I have to I have to grant him. He said, "We have we have a place for someone on the administrative staff of the museum, for someone with your credentials, but we're reserving it for, and the term at the time was Afro-American uh-huh. uh, applicant." And I, and I said, "That's fine with me. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Uh-huh. I I, I'm, I support that concept." And and then it, and he said, "But if you want to hang around and you know help us out with exhibits and stuff like that." Actually, one of the best. I was only there for about a year, and one of the one of the uh, great, great, greatest parts of that was um, I had access to a a really nice camera, a Veronica single lens reflex camera that was two and a quarter square. I had two and a quarter square film in it, so you mm-hmm. made really big negatives, and you were shooting single lens, which was just making breakthroughs at the time. And um, I, I I was. Uh, one of one of the museum's uh, donors or whatever, Elliot Ellisolfin was the guy's name. He wanted a, a photographic collection of the museum's fetish figures, so I I got to do that. That was an assignment I had. It took me a couple of weeks and all that, and I just you know I set up a, a shooting you know like studio and I got I photographed all those all the figures and uh, several of which were published in African Arts magazine uh, a month or two later. Cool. Um, Yeah, so that was kind of of interesting.
0: So given all of this experience, what piece of advice might you give to someone of my generation?
1: Okay, good question. And if I base things on what I did, what I would say is, and it goes back to the old expression, do what you love and love what you do. You never know what, what doors are going to open to you once you do that.
0: So there you have it. Do what you love and love what you do. Big shout out to my dad for um, being such a role model and for sharing all these stories with me and now with you. You can find him on Spotify or iTunes. Um, His old band was Celtic Thunder, not the boy band that you might um, find if you Google, but... Uh, The traditional Irish music one. His most recent album is called This Day 2, which features my cousin Michael and my Uncle Terry as well uh, With songs also written by my Uncle Terry, so please check that out He also plays every Monday night at the Irish Inn in Glen Echo if you're in the DMV region But of course with everything going on um, That's not happening But they have been playing on Tuesday nights in the parking lot. So if you're looking for a little social distance thing to do, check that out. Oh, I guess I should plug myself too. Um, My Instagram is Fiona Winch. Website, same thing. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And please keep an eye out for the next episode. This was Thoughtful Intentions. Okay, that's all.